Yale Podcast Network. Even as little kids, the, the thing that you do when you go to these places is you knock on the glass. It's like the first thing you do. And you, even as an adult, you almost have to stop your impulse from just like tapping on the glass. And so it's not that you want to see it, is that you, you want it to see you. Just the idea that we will be acknowledged by something out there is like electrifying for us. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. Our guest today, the acclaimed film director and producer Gabriella Cowperthwaite, did not set out to make a film that would force a national moral reckoning over how we keep whales in captivity, slash the profits of SeaWorld, and make her the unexpected enemy number one of a multi-billion dollar industry. But that's what happened. Cowperthwaite wasn't a marine mammal activist before she made the documentary Blackfish. She was a mom who had taken her kids to SeaWorld, and she was an exceptionally talented filmmaker with over a dozen years of experience creating TV documentaries. She set out to tell the truth, and the truth, told by Cowperthwaite, was, like the orcas themselves, complicated and powerful. Blackfish is the thrilling and heartbreaking story of a single 12,000-pound protagonist, a performing orca bull named Tillicum, who killed three people while in captivity. In tracing Tillicum's narrative, from his violent capture in the wild as a two-year-old orca to his life as a highly feeling and intelligent animal, becoming psychotic while living in what one interviewee calls a bathtub, Cowperthwaite reveals the orca's extraordinary nature, the horror of how we have treated them in captivity for so long without understanding or acknowledging the consequences, and the profound regret of trainers who once cared for Tillicum. In doing so, Cowperthwaite revealed to the American public and beyond the profound disconnect between SeaWorld's public image and the reality of what it means for humans to treat orcas this way. Shot on a budget of just $76,000 and released in 2010, Blackfish has been viewed by more than 60 million people and has become one of the most impactful and successful documentary films of all time. SeaWorld's stock price plummeted 60% following the film's theatrical premiere. The U.S. House of Representatives voted unanimously to provide $1 million toward a study on the effects of captivity on orcas. And celebrities, airlines, fast food giants, and musical tour groups spoke against and dropped associations with SeaWorld. Eventually, the company responded to public pressure by announcing changes at its theme parks, including officially ending its orca breeding program and phasing out orca shows altogether by the end of 2019. Cowperthwaite's David slayed SeaWorld's Goliath, not with a sword, but with a story. Cowperthwaite is one of the most powerful on-screen storytellers at work today, illuminating the complexities, nature, and psychology of humans' relationship with non-human animals, a topic she continued to explore in her moving 2017 featured drama, Megan Levy, which tells the true story of a young Marine played by Kate Mara and her combat dog, Rex. Together, they saved countless lives in Iraq while searching for roadside bombs. Gabriella Cowperthwaite, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. So how did you become a filmmaker? What drew you to the art form? Um, gosh, I was actually in grad school in political science at USC. So I, don't, I didn't go to filmmaking school or anything like that. I've always been um, just 
a storyteller and I think wanted to maybe be in journalism or something like that and ended up taking um, a course over at the film school in media and media and politics and met somebody who asked me to produce their documentary. And so I kind of backed into it that way and learned really on the job through internships and all that. Then, you know, started taking jobs in the documentary field and then finally started making my own um, right around, I guess it was 2008 or so and made the first one and then made Blackfish after that. And then kind of went, went to Megan Levy. And in 2008, I did some Iraq war documentaries and that, that sort of thing, but kind of moved into the animal world with Blackfish right around 2012. Everything changed after that film came out. What attracted you to the human-animal relationships topic and the Blackfish story in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been a lover of animals, never, but never any, never someone who I would have considered to be an activist or I was, you know, I've never done it. I've never come to a protest. Um, I just kind of was always thinking about them and always kind of looking at birds and insects and always had three dogs and four cats growing up. So always been a lover of them. And I think, to be honest, I think when, when it was the death of Don Brancho um, that struck me, a trainer at SeaWorld, and I couldn't believe people weren't asking more kind of why did it happen type questions. All the stories around that time were about that it happened. And, and I was, I guess it just occurred to me, it was sort of like, was the whale angry? Why would you be a trainer anyway? If, you know, if you're, you're swimming with this 8,000 pound animal, like what attracts people to that, to that world? I'm just really, really curious about like how something so horrific and so sad could have happened. Um, So I completely came in it with a question. This was a beloved, uh, very, very good trainer at the top of her game, quote unquote, you know, she was apparently one of the best and a veteran and she, and I couldn't understand how she came to be killed by killer whale. So I guess it's really just the curiosity of, of trying to understand kind of the, the human animal dynamic and the human animal relationship that I needed an answer to. And that, that became the documentary. I didn't have an answer. I didn't have kind of a, a thesis. Um, I just had that question. And there are manifold insights about whales woven into the narrative such that there have been no recorded attacks on humans in the wild by killer whales, contrary to what their name might suggest. So was that, was that irony part of the motivating stuff for you? Or was that, did you discover all that stuff in the process of making it? I totally discovered it through the research of, of pursuing the documentary. I think we all just have this love for kind of cetaceans there's just this, we, we all know that their intelligence and um, killer whales and whales and dolphins. And, and so in a way, yeah, it did seem like sort of this love, this benevolent creature had done something very, very sad. And so I think that was, that was kind of my entry point to it, but I didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't know that, I guess by and large, I figured they hadn't been, you know, they, they were not attackers and they were, they were kind to humans and let leave us alone in the wild and all that. And I know there's no, there's, there's been a couple brushes with them, but no deaths of um, killer whales and, and human beings and not even record. Apparently this 
is just this one amazing fact. But when you when scientists have explored carcasses or remains of killer whales, they've found that there have been no killer whales killing other killer whales. It's not just killer whales that haven't killed humans. So um, all of this, all of these facts were things I, I learned from from researching the movie. You've talked about in past interviews how it was, and as you said here too, very important to, for you to find and to tell the truth. But of course, how you tell that truth matters profoundly too. And I wonder if you could speak to that, that as you unraveled this story, how did you think about actually conveying it to the audience? Because however it was done was done in a way that was clearly so extraordinarily effective, but not, it wasn't heavy handed or, you know, pushing whale facts right. or activist info down their throats. And I'm curious how you how you thought about that and also how you thought about featuring Tilikum, a whale, as the main protagonist around which the story is so compellingly crafted. Right, right. Well, thanks for noticing that, that you know, storytelling, I mean, it really is everything in these situations. And I think in terms of how to tell that story, a couple things came to mind for me. And one is that when you come at something and you sort of assume that the audience already knows it's a bad thing you're going down a road where you where you might be be in an echo chamber what i came to realize about kind of myself and and how i came into the story was that i had taken my kids to sea world and i remember i call it the cringe factor um, where you see people standing on the heads of killer whales and, and doing these things and you sort of cringe and you're just like, that can't be good. Like, I don't know, you know, and, but you look around you and then everybody in the audience is smiling and having fun. And so you think you're the problem. It's, it's pr- pretty crazy. So I do remember, I do remember thinking this doesn't seem great, but you know what? It's gotta be okay. Everybody's having fun. This place looks clean and shiny. And this is, you know, I had, I had tons of trouble looking at primates in zoos. I just, I thought that was just so clearly awful. And so, so me, you know, thinking SeaWorld, oh, well, SeaWorld, SeaWorld must do it great. They must be better at least, you know, that was, that was something interesting for me to kind of inspect in myself. And that is, I, I had been going to these parks and I had been drinking what they were pouring. Um, and so coming at this film in terms of storytelling with some honesty about that and some humility about that was something I knew I had to do because I knew I needed to speak to people who go to SeaWorld and who didn't think that it was a problem and and it, it did not speak necessarily to the people who already know it's a problem. And so in order to do that, I had to sort of say, look, I'm a mom who had... I've taken I've taken kid, my kids to SeaWorld, so I get it. I get it, you guys. It does seem like a, a bright and shiny, happy place, but here's what I've learned. Um, so coming at it that way was important. I think also in terms of the storytelling, talking to the trainers, former trainers, was so key um, that I just I I can't sort of impress upon it that upon it more that it was. I think in some ways, the portal of entry into telling the story in an impactful way. And that is because when you are the messenger from, from the other side and you come out and say, no, 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 I used, to, I used to work with them. I believed in this place. I believed I was doing a good thing. And here's what I've, here's what I've learned since. Then a 
again, you, you, you're speaking from a point of humility, not in a pedantic, preachy, I know this is bad. How can you all, how can you people still be going there? Um, but coming at it just from a point of, I don't know, humbleness and say, you know, I, I made mistakes. Please, please learn from, learn from them and, and hear me out. I think that is something that is really, really important when you're trying to communicate a message. I think we're all, as audiences, we're kind of like stubborn adolescents in a weird way. We don't like to be told what to think um, or how to feel. You have to sort of trust us and, and just show us, tell us a story. Tell us a simple story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Tell it effectively. I happen to have a the, the you know, most powerful anti-hero protagonist, antagonist, animal, Tilikum at my disposal to be able to, to tell this narrative. But, but, you know, tell it from a point of, hey, my eyes were closed too, and, and now they're open. So what, what do you guys think about this? Um, I think that was key in trying to get a new demographic and a new audience to pay attention. And lastly, just, you know, I think that I did also fashion the film to be like a narrative feature film, like, like basically like a thriller. I felt like if I can get some, someone who just maybe doesn't, you know, whatever, eats meat, hunts, whatever. And if I can get that guy to like pay attention to it, because there's some like intense whale moments in it and some scary moments in it. And I get him to sort of sit down then I can maybe get that demographic and people who you don't imagine would think about animal activism or care about animals in that way. If I can get that guy to back into caring, then, then I've got something. So in a way, I just had to get that. I, I whatever, decided to make a film that was entertaining rather than kind of pedantic or listing facts. We wanted to, just for listeners, we're going to play a quick clip from the trailer. So that's what you're going to hear in just one moment. This is the, a clip from the trailer for Blackfish. When you look into their eyes, you know somebody is home. They're an animal that possesses great spiritual power not to be meddled with. We need SO to respond for a dead person at SeaWorld. We stored these whales in what we call a module, which was 20 feet across and 30 feet deep, and the lights were all turned out. Probably led to what I think is a psychosis. I think also, I mean, one of the sobering things about the film as a case study and as someone who came at this with a background in political science it's such a chilling example of the behavior of an animal reflecting human behavior. And it, so, so Telecom's behavior was really an artifact of these corrupt practices. One of the levels on which I think the film resonates is the potential implications for just thinking about other avenues of social justice. And, and we were curious about whether creating it and spearheading the campaign, some of the campaigns that, that came out of it impacted how you think about social justice in other arenas? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um need those conversations more than ever right now, uh, it seems like. And, and yeah, I do feel like 
to be to be perfectly, perfectly honest, like storytelling is one of the biggest tools at our disposal right now. I think Blackfish taught me that, that that you just you you tell a story effectively and people will find footing in it. They'll find empathy through a, a, a char- one character maybe or an issue or something that feels familiar to them. So it's a really powerful tool. And, it, and you've, it, you've seen it used for the Central Park Five. You've seen it used in Black, Black Lives Matter. You've seen it used in all the social movements that we're kind of seeing right now is, is really stories and people saying, you know, this happened to me and look at the reverberations of this. I do, I do truly believe that, you know, it, it just sounds so cliche, but just uh, uh, you can, you can plug ahead and, and try to say something or, or write something or make a film and you really can affect change. You don't need billions of dollars. You need some sort of access point for sure. Mine happened to have been a film and, um, and in some ways I feel like it struck a nerve because I feel that younger people today um, are prepared for activism in a way that my generation wasn't. If I think about, you know, high school in the 80s and college in the 90s, like in the 90s, it became a little bit cool, cooler to kind of be an activist and think about things like that. But the in the 80s, not at all. Like I remember apartheid being a real, real call to arms. And that's about it. You know, I remember it not being cool to care a whole lot about any one thing. And that's, that's so sad. I think it was coming off of hippie parents and what that whole movement was like. And I guess us trying to not be that, but I, I grew up with very, very activisty parents. And so I remember just being like, gosh, being really earnest and caring a whole lot about something was not cool back then. It was, it was weird. And so now I feel it is so needed, but more than that is actually sort of embraced um, to care. And to come at something from an earnest perspective and to talk about how something, how an issue hurts you, you know, hurts you personally, hurts your family, like things like that. There's an emotional, a social, emotional availability right now that I feel is really beautiful and is, is going to move us towards something. But I guess for people to sort of understand that, like, you truly can change things. You truly can get out there and stand for something and find people that want to listen. In terms of social justice, Blackfish certainly taught me that. You know, you don't have to have all the money in the world. You don't have to be a powerful person or a well-known person to be able to get a, get a, a point made or get a message out there. But I will say you do, you, you have to, I guess, have access to people who are willing to tell the story with you. <clears throat> you know, I'm nothing, I'm nothing without the animal uh, science community who armed me with all the information. Um, I'm nothing without the former trainers who told me exactly what it was like at SeaWorld and exactly what it was like to ride on a whale and what was going on behind the scenes and the veterinarians and all this stuff there. Um, and so just you know, finding, finding your community so that your story and your information is airtight when you take it out to the world is incredibly important as well. And the story in this case really had to be airtight since the implications for this enormous industry were profound, so profound, in fact, that as many listeners probably know, 
Uh, a whole new term was coined for the phenomenon called the blackfish effect, which one of my favorite details of which reading in preparation for this interview about the film's impact was that SeaWorld, by law, um, as a public company, has to list risks that investors should be aware of in their regulatory filings. And eventually, after the impact had gone far enough, they included, in more words than this, but effectively storytelling in either film or media of other types about accidents that happen at its park or pier parks as a, as a risk. And I thought that was so stunning to see, you know, literally on, on the business model, effective storytelling, effectively, you know, listed up there with natural disasters and all the other things that they're required to write. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, that's it's so uh, it's so true. It was such a crazy ride, um, that whole thing. I mean, we thought first of all, I I didn't know Blackfish would ever be would ever be viewed by anybody. So, but you know, I I thought it was I thought it was really uh, um, an important and an impactful and an entertaining watch. But that's me, and so you know, I was like, nobody sees documentaries anyway. So for sure, we didn't think it would be would have an impact, let alone be seen. And then we went to Sundance with it and <clears throat> apparently SeaWorld showed up there and in disguise because a lot of the former trainers would have recognized them and watched the movie. So it's just, it's so, it's so strange. They were kind of onto us very early on. And of course, you know, yes, we were, you know, a risk factor with them, but as I'm sure it is out there now, it, investors really didn't think it was listed um, up front and effectively. And so investors took SeaWorld to task and basically said, you know, you, you failed to disclose that this film was going to impact things and that you actually knew that it was going to impact things. To this day, I still get phone calls from lawyers hmm. who are, who are speaking on behalf of a group of investors who were like, by the way, would you testify and this and that? And I'm usually like, no, <laughs> you guys should have, you guys should have done some research. But anyway, it's uh, it is uh, interesting that yeah, that's right. That that story storytelling can be one of the most effective tools to kind of pull back the curtain on a place that has operated unchecked for decades. Hmm. What do you make of the argument that keeping animals captive and putting them in shows, um, in zoos, and comparable institutions like that? inspires people to care for them and helps with conservation. So I'm thinking of Dan Ash, who's the CEO of the U.S. Association of Zoos and Aquariums. He published a piece last year. I'll read this quote from him. He said, There is controversy about keeping animals in human care. Some like to say, quote, captivity. Yet if we are going to protect wildlife, providing homes for the creatures, great and small, that depend upon them, we must nurture a public that sees the protection of these places as relevant and essential. So this is an argument that one hears quite a bit, and this is coming from someone who has enormous stake in, in these industries and wields quite a bit of power. What do you make of that received wisdom? You know, I think when you when you think about he's saying housing animals and, and he's just sort of, I, I think the danger is he's really broad stroking the entire thing. Um, is there some, do you think there, you know, is there some value to rehabilitation and release? I, I believe there is to be able to, to take an animal and rehabilitate it during, during which people can perhaps view that animal and see that animal, but with the knowledge that that animal will be released from human care and put back in the ocean, then that is, that is something that I think there could be a sustainable model that way. And I think that Monterey Bay Aquarium is an example 
of look, there's not a there's not a dolphin in sight. And they're incredibly entertaining, you know, for people to come and see. And that could up their profits, but they refuse to do that. Um, but they do rehabilitation and release with sea otters and so forth. And they keep them in a sea pen so that they sort of stay in the natural environment and, you know, allows for their re-entry to probably be a bit more seamless. So if that's what he means, then of course there's, there's some value to that of sort of helping sustain wildlife. Um, and, you know, sanctuaries, there are animals who were in zoos, who were in uh, circuses forever, who could be released to sanctuaries, either sea sanctuaries or land sanctuaries. And like they, they do do that in certain places with, with, you know, elephants and so forth. So there are, and, and these animals would not survive in the wild because they don't know how to hunt. So there is that, but to pretend that they that they need us or that it's sort of like in some weird existential way inevitable that we should be housing them i think it starts it starts to collapse in on itself like i don't i don't see that that argument is just something that's going to be make it okay to continue to make profit from animals in captivity um i also think that the the argument like what's the science for the argument that like the fact that you saw an animal pacing back and forth in a cage made you suddenly care about that animal, you know, more than maybe watching uh, blue planet or something of that animal, you know? And so sort of the idea that like causing distress for an animal, for some reason, people equate that with just this like boundless education when we are not even really seeing that animal, you're not really seeing what the animal can do and how that animal can thrive and, and, you know, how that animal survives and how it moves. Um, you know, you're seeing a big cat pace back and forth, which is crazily unnatural and is nothing. It's like a facsimile of the real thing. So how can you really make the argument that that is actually educating you? And that's sort of opening your eyes when all you're seeing is really human dominance and human mastery you know, we've got this animal. Look, look at it not being itself. I just, it's, it's so, you know, and, and look, you know, are there some zoos that have, you know, this, there were animals that were, were heavily endangered. And so they've reintroduced some of those, you know, as a result of some zoo programs. So there are some arguments there that, that could sustain the idea that there are some good things that humans can do for animals, for sure. But to pretend that that is just this, this amazing model um, that goes hand in hand with education is really goofy. And I think, I think he knows that. And I think, you know, look, all of these people are so, so emotionally invested in telling themselves this story. You know, anyone who works in these industries, including trainers at SeaWorld right now and everything, like you're emotionally invested in, in making sure that you going to work every day is not hurting the animals and that you're not going to work every day doing a bad thing. Like, I get it. You have to tell your, yourself a story to get up every morning. But at some point, we just, we just have to evolve. Guys, we're, nobody's buying it anymore. Like, we've got to evolve. We're not doing what's best for these animals at all. We, we have to get to a place where people stop believing we are totally separate from and superior to nature. You know, we, we've got to realize that like the, the goal is not to love them more, but to accept that we're probably not that different 
and that, and that we're pretty interconnected and move past the captivity model. It's such an evocative way to put it, to ask what we're actually looking at when we look at, at Tilikum or, or at these captive animals. It reminds me of a line by John Berger in his essay, Why Look at Animals, when he he talks about how in a zoo you can look at animals, but nowhere can you encounter the unadulterated look of an animal. And what he means by that, I take it, is that you're looking at someone who's been absolutely marginalized and who's no longer the subject of its own universe. And so, right, so it's like, what are you looking at? Are you looking at this, you, you're, you're given the illusion that you're seeing this, this being, but what are you seeing? Are you seeing potentially the perpetuation of the myth that nature is something out there? That's, it, that's exactly it, that it's separate, you know? And, that, and the one amazing thing that we were sort of discussing when we got really into the weeds about talking about blackfish and what, what it means to go to a place and see a killer whale and, you know, in captivity or see, you know, see a primate in, in a zoo. And it's just, if you think about it, even as little kids, the, the thing that you do when you go to these places is you knock on the glass. It's like the first thing you do. And you, even as an adult, you almost have to stop your impulse from just like tapping on the glass. And so it's not that you want to see it, is that you, you want it to see you. It's the weirdest thing about us. We're so weirdly self-centered as a species. Just the idea that we will be acknowledged by something out there is like electrifying for us. And it doesn't mean that we're terrible, right? Because it's like, we love these animals. You truly look at them with love, but it's like, just please see me you know, and see me and see me. And are we connected? And what do you see when you see me? And like, you want to look at it in its eyes. And so if you think about it that way, you're sort of like, this is so for us. It is completely for us. And at some point it, and it's weird and it's really uncomfortable to acknowledge this, but like our love is causing harm. And that's not something we're comfortable with it, but it's, I, I liken it to the moment when we take, when we're kids and we take a, a, a bird with a broken wing or something, you put it in a shoebox and you're like, put worms in there and some grass in there. And you're like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I love this bird. How do I nurse it back to health? And then the bird doesn't get better, let's say, or it dies or it's, and then you, and then you wake up the next day and you're just like, my God, how, how could it have been that my love caused this? And it's, so it's, it's, really weird. It does a number on us. But I, I, I literally think that is, the, that is the perfect metaphor for what we do when we put these animals in captivity. <laughs> Overall, less of us is a good thing. Very counterintuitive when you're a, when you're a pretty self-centered species. But I think, I think that is, gosh, unless we're really, truly bringing entire species back from endangerment or, or rehabilitating and releasing and we really that is truly the focus is to like love you for a second in order to set you free then um you know that could be the good version of it but you know unless it's that I'm I don't I don't see the value anymore that's such an I never thought about it that way in terms of of love but it just occurs to me now it's because it 
one of the hazards of love is this impulse to remake the loved object in your image and to render it predictable. And it strikes me as it's such a compelling way of just thinking about love in general and, and to what extent the Anthropocene is, is damaging our capacities to do that. That's right. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's, it's such a, it's, it's, you know, it's, we are constantly unpacking our stuff. We're a fraught species and we're just constantly figuring ourselves out through, through other mechanisms. And um, when I see, when I see people standing on the faces of cetaceans, what is it that we're doing? We're, we're master, we're mastering. We're, we're trying to be bigger than and better than. And what does that say about us, you know, or coddling something to death, you know, like there's just like, it's all, it's all us and our constant, constant unpacking of our own S word. (laughs) Mm. I'm I'm wondering too, if you can speak to the ongoing responsibility of being a storyteller, you see this in the film in a number of ways. First, you know, in the film itself, where you see people, there's one extraordinarily moving interview where you can hear your voice in the background as, as it's filming with one of the people who was there present at an orca whale capture and his profound regret and inability to forget what it sounded like for the whales screaming and grieving as they were captured from the wild. And you can you feel a sense with this interview, and as with so many with the trainers and so forth, of someone having seen uh, this story and uh, having then bearing the weight to want to tell it properly to you. and But then you also had a, a very unusual experience with this film, I imagine, in that typically I would think people make a film and they publish it and they do press for it and then they move on to their next film. Whereas you've gone from being both the director and the producer to being really the steward of this effect and a very good one at that, luckily for whales and people alike. And, and I wonder if you could just speak to how you think about that responsibility as a storyteller. <clears throat> that is very sweet of you to say, and I appreciate it because I it was a uh, uh, hat I wore and I didn't know what I was doing. I was, thank goodness, just flanked with just people on all sides who were totally comfortable comfortable with me being a spokesperson. And they would just arm me constantly with, with information and with facts. And, and that was, that's what allowed me to, to be a mouthpiece for a cause that pre-existed me by decades and decades. But yeah, you know, it, it, I didn't know what I was doing, to be perfectly honest. I just, I knew how to make a film. Um, I knew how I felt about the issue. And I was so, I was so moved by it and changed and transformed by it. And I was like, well, gosh, you know, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this out in whatever way I can. And so I feel, but I felt like an unlikely steward because I hadn't been, hadn't been immersed in the issue for decades and so I didn't know what to do, for example, when SeaWorld came at me and kind of unleashed their trolls on, on social media and hacking into my Facebook and like, who knows who it was, you know, whether it was them or whether it was just their people, I don't know. But it was really like, oh, okay, this is, this is a fight. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, seen as someone who's taking away some livelihoods of, you know, if, if SeaWorld downsizes. Um, suddenly there's that whole issue. So I, I, I felt like I was on shaky ground and, uh, was to be perfectly honest, kind of scared. We were scared we were going to get sued, but for whatever reason, we just, we knew we had an airtight document, but we still figured they would find a way to, to come at us. 
um, for use of footage. I mean, I have no idea, but I would wake up in cold sweats all the time, just like, we're going to lose our house. And people are awfully mad at me. And some of these emails I'm getting are just, how do they even get my email and, and, you know, issue threats and all that. So it was, it was uh, intense. Um, But in, in terms of just being, being able to just speak and I get, you know, as you say, steward, that's just, that's, that's so nice. I, I just, I guess I, I, saw it as, as my responsibility to continue doing the work that I think Blackfish kicked off. And that is that the movie reached people who did not come from activism necessarily or animal activism. And so because I was someone who also didn't come from that world, I was able to talk to people who were SeaWorld goers. Um, and that and that worked like I was a voice that they understood. And so I, I could sort of speak and I guess in a, in a hey, you guys, like, I get it, you know, um, kind of way. So I guess, I guess that was, that was interesting. I did sometimes wonder like how, how long I would be doing it and would there be someone else to take, take it over and and do it better than I would? Um, because there were times where I felt like animal science folks are the ones who should be, who, who should be front and center. They're the smartest ones. They're the ones who have been doing this forever and ever. And same with the former trainers. Like they were just like, so fired up and so good at talking about it from such a personal perspective. So I wondered like at times, like, am I, am I really continuing to be effective and, or am I, I don't know, but, you know, moving on to your next film, you always, you did, you don't want to ditch the cause and, uh, and just look like someone who sort of charlataned their way in and, and are you're now onto your next film. So I guess it was a confusing time in some ways, but all I knew was that I, I believed, I believed in what I what I had learned, and my heart was in it. And so, yeah. So I guess I did a very rabbit holy way of <laughs> of describing the complexity of of suddenly wearing you know wearing some some shoes that you weren't prepared to wear. Mm. And your next film, too, though, continued to explore in a very different way. It was a drama feature named Megan Levy, as we said at the start, which is also an amazing film starring Kate Mara, explores the story of a canine handler who goes on two tours in Iraq and completes over 100 missions with a dog, a military dog named Rex. And I'm curious, what was it like to transition from that and what drew you to that story of Rex and Megan Levy, which has an interesting twist then viewed in light of Blackfish, where Blackfish was about an entertainment animal. And here, then, when you switched to making a drama, you needed to use an, ent- an animal on, on set. Um, I'm, I'm curious what that was like and how you approached that and what drew you to that story, also focused on human-animal relationships, but from a very different type of story. Yeah. So completely different, you know, um, obviously completely different issue in, in dogs in the military and whales in captivity. You know, I think that the, some of the, the basic sort of human human animal themes were similar, in that like you you uh, you know this thing you know this animal is so much more than than meets the eye. This is this is an animal you you you've got to see as as bigger than yourself, in some ways, in order to really just know how to know how to treat the animal and know how to kind of coexist with that animal. Um, is, is to acknowledge just sort of how big and full this animal is. And, you know, in, in, in the case of, of the killer whales in, in Blackfish, like it was really just understanding just their intelligence and what they need to be able to, 
survive or let, let alone thrive. And, um, and that these these, these tanks cannot provide that. And then, you know, with a, with a dog human relationship in Megan Levy, it was sort of like this, this dog transformed her and was something that taught her love and taught her companionship. And so it was completely different exploration of the human animal relationship, but hopefully was, was, touch people in a, in a, in a different way. It was complicated. I will tell you, you know, it's, it's like, I didn't know about dogs in the military. I didn't know kind of the history. I know now I know that they've always, they've fought alongside us since the beginning of time. Unlike, you know, killer whales have been in captivity for four decades. Dogs have evolved alongside us for 10,000 years. So sort of the dog human relationship has some caveats that the killer whale relationship doesn't have with human beings. But it was, it was incredibly tricky. Like, I, I will be honest, like a production, a film production, I'm supposed to be in charge of that production. So I am supposed to be in charge of kind of like what happens on set. Not all the details and all that, but sort of, you know, by and large, it is supposed to be my set and the producer's set. Um, so we share that. And so we have these dogs, right, that are playing Rex. And they're treated with kid gloves. They're the main, the trainer's main animals. and they love them blind. And so, you know, that that's all there, but like, I can't make sure that where they go home, where they go at night and where they, and where they sleep is uh, the most perfect place in the world and the most perfect humane situation in the world. Like, I don't know. I, tr I trust these trainers love their dogs and I know they do um, from, you know, my interactions with them, but it's like, it's a really, it's a really tricky thing to really know for sure that an animal on a set is being treated completely 100% humanely. So I think that's part of like what happens on sets in general with people as well. Like, like there is a bottom line and people want to, you to make your days and rush your shooting so that you don't go over time. And if that means that people take a toll, take the toll or animals take the toll, I know it happens. Um, and so it is an unwieldy, world for sure that um i think needs to be made made better and i think that's you know we saw that in a dog's purpose where that i'm not sure if you guys heard about that yeah a dog was struggling and almost drowned and and i know that producer and i know that producer is a major animal activist and as he said he has more animal friends than he does human friends i mean and i and i i know that he is that guy but he was not on set that day and so it's like look what can happen when you just take your eye off the ball it is a, a, a very tricky one and one that I don't know that we've mastered. I mean, the, the big picture is like, oh, we told a story that is going to make most more people care and understand about, understand dogs, understand it's sort of like their service in the military, you know, whatever. Like, is there a bigger good that comes with that? But I'm like, I don't know, like that anything, you know, is bigger than the treatment of your animals. I saw our animals being treated well, but again, you can never swear on the Bible that everything's perfect. It's, it's a tricky one. Mm -hmm. And there's some groups now that call for, you know, only using computer-generated image animals for, for film sets. What do you think about that? And was that an option that you'd considered for, for your film? I do um, think that's an amazing option, hopefully the only option. Um, and we, in order to have a film like that, you're on a $200 million film. Mm. So like you're, you're, you're in, you're in a, a a bracket that most of us will never be won't be in. I see. Mm -hmm. But the industry needs to move in that direction. You know, I, I believe 
in, in small cases, I'm sure there can be, you know, cases where the animal is not forced to do certain things um, under duress. I'm sure that exists. But again, I, I still think it's like it's really, really hard to hold to hold a production in check uh, at all times. You really can't know. So, yeah, would, would love it to move in that direction. Do you have any projects brewing that are ready to be discussed or involving human animals at the moment? Yeah, well, um, I just finished a, a, a feature film, a narrative feature film that has, that has no animals in it. There's one little animal in it, and, but is not about animals there. And then there is, um, there's a documentary that I'm working on right now that is with the Center for Investigative Reporting and Rockland Faust, and that is, um, it does discuss um, animals for sure. Um, I have to be a bit weirdly cagey about it just because we're not quite out with it yet, but it is, it does, it does involve um, animal issues for sure. Well, we eagerly look forward to that. Um, To close, we like to ask each of our guests for two or three book or film recommendations that have influenced how they think about animals and human animal relationships. What would you recommend? Um, Grizzly Man. Mm, Great film. (laughs) That's a good film and so morally confusing. Mm. And I think that's such an important one to think about and look at critically. To be honest, it was sort of like a, a, a blackfish for me in a way of just like, I couldn't stop thinking about it and couldn't stop thinking about like this, how much love you have for this animal to the point of where you're putting yourself in, in that close proximity to them and what that means. You know, I don't know. It was just, it was, it was sort of baffling for me and a really important one. There's a book called The Painter by Peter Heller, loosely based on a real story, but a man witnesses someone beating a horse. Oh, like Nietzsche? Yeah, 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 probably like that. Um, yeah, interesting. I never, I never thought of it in that way. But yeah, like it's a, it's a, you know, a modern Western and um, a, a man witnesses that happening and it sets him on a course and it sort of a, has a thriller feel to it and everything, but it is beautiful in the way it thinks that that book thinks about animals and kind of human animal relationships. And um, there's, yeah, a couple passages where he talks about his love for a spider. He's has this love for the spider, just kind of weaving a web in a way that he's never loved a human. And it's, there's moments that are, that are beautiful like that in this book. And then I guess, you know, I guess the cove, my buddy, Louie, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that was um, something I saw after I made Blackfish, believe it or not, just because I didn't think I could watch it, but that's just tremendous what that has done, obviously for, for activism and how much you can get behind a cause um, that is just so clearly um, wrong and any way that anything can be wrong. That was, that's a powerful one for me. There's one called Moo Man that I just remember seeing about a man and his cows that he raises. That was beautiful. And saw it during the Blackfish Circuit. And it, it, it's a, also a really powerful one. Those are the ones that are, that are coming to mind. Well, that sounds terrific. Well, Gabriella Kepperthwaite, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity, guys. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, 
write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Gabriella Kilperthwaite and her work. Thanks for listening.